You're listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves into the craft of our favorite games. Oh, motherfucker, I've got the new intro and he's not even here. Each week, Roger is joined by Joe, Vince, and Marty. He's not. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't take long for that guy to skim by that. I mean, can you blame him? Joe was being very mean to him. He earned it. I'm not denying that. Welcome to For the Lord. This is Roger coming to you on Monday, the 6th of November. And, guys, congratulations. This is now officially our longest-running podcast at 276 episodes. Woohoo! Yay! So we passed Comic Book Informer, which was at 275. So, rarefied air. Without Marty, which makes it better. (laughs) (laughs) We have got a couple of interesting conversations coming up. We are going to be discussing... The recent trend towards monetizing on gamers with loot boxes and and whatnot. And what our opinions are about that. Not just in terms of loot boxes, but also the monetization post-release of a game. And I want to make very clear here as we progress through. At points, some of us, more than others potentially, are going to be fairly excited, (laughs) passionate as we discuss our opinions. I want to make it very clear that we are coming at this from the perspective of enthusiastic gamers. While we may speak to people in the industry, and I know some of us more than others, I don't feel that we're going to be like, we're not pretending to be in the industry. We're not experts in the industry. We are not going to be pretending like we know all of the ins and outs of what constitutes a successful game for a publisher versus what is a critical success because there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes for that you have the the passionate gamers who just want an experience that is especially for those of us who are older akin to different experiences we had in the past where you don't feel like you're being leached or taken advantage of by publishers you have game developers who just are passionate for the most part about creating something Again, I I feel a lot of warmth towards that group because far and wide, a lot of them think the same way that we kind of do in terms of the things that we create. So I respect creators, but we all have to bow to people sometimes to get something done. In In this case, it often is the publishers. And in this case, you're looking a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times at business people it's not that they're passionate about games there may be some of them who are but by and large that's not what it's about for them that may be a bonus if there's a game that they are enthusiastic about certainly and they can feign that no doubt but they're beholden to the board of directors they're beholden to their their investors what they need to do is make money now there's a lot that has been said about this recently not the least of which because of the trend that has been going on with loot boxes as of late, wherein it is no longer just a surprise bonus when you level or achieve something, but is a gambling method. Now, the ESBR has said that, no, it's not gambling, because in the end, in most games, you get something anyways. However, as gamers, I think we are better able to 
value the junk that we get from loot boxes than they are because we can say, no, that's the equivalent to nothing. So it is gambling. But there's a happy medium in there that can be attained. But I think it's important to hear all sides of this. It's all well and good to rant. And we will because there's been some recent developments that are so utterly soul-crushing and for us to say that just as gamers is nothing as compared to the people who are now having to look for other jobs because of that. But I, I actually linked in Discord uh, an interesting uh, uh, post that I, I read online. It was somebody who was, from the perspective of a dev, explaining how certain things have to be kind of, there has to be some wiggle room there in order to be profitable, in order for your mm-hmm. studio to be effective and to do well and continue to make games. Again, it's a delicate balance, and I'm not saying we're right in our opinions that we're about to present, but they are our opinions. So with that, okay, Joe, rant ahead. <laughs> it's all you. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep this as measured as I possibly can because this is something that I've actually put a lot of research into over the last several months, whether... Uh, again, like Roger said, talking to friends that we do have that do work in the industry to get their perspective of it to, to sort of see if I can temper my do don't leech me attitude uh, when it comes to certain things. Now, first thing that I have to make mention of is if you're unfamiliar with what games as a service means, it's a word you're going to be hearing a lot recent or a lot, especially now. Um, it's not loot boxes per se. Games as a service means continued engagement with the player base. Uh, What it means is this is season passes, regular updates, DLCs, uh, as well as paid content that force players to interact with the game by either forcing them to make an initial uh, upfront sort of monetary commitment that makes them feel obligated, i.e. season pass, to periodic updates that, you know, make them feel like they want to spend more money and more time in the game world, a DLC or a branching game path like the Billy Lurk expansion for... Uh, Dishonored 2, those are all games as service. This also goes into cosmetic rewards um, or things that do not count as pay to win. Um, I need to make that distinction very, very clear. That is very important in this discussion. Recently, the industry has been turning that games as service thing around because since games as service has become a thing, the profitability of the game industry has gone up by about 30%. That's huge. And the reason for that is because a lot of these older microtransactions are starting to turn into loot box spectacles. Well, before you could buy a skin uh, for your favorite character in a MOBA, and there are some companies that still do this, there's a trend to make you want to purchase or make the player purchase a loot box for a chance to get the skin. Uh, It is very predatory. It is gambling, in my opinion. And I understand to a certain degree why they want to sort of cash in on that profitability. Now, there have been some arguments coming out about how, you know, it doesn't cost as much to make games as it used to. Well, it does. And it's not the technology that's the barrier. And I actually got into a very long discussion about this with Rockjaw uh, over Twitter a couple weeks ago. It's not the cost of technology that is the barrier anymore. It's the cost of people. When we talk about overhead and we talk about the people that make our games, we often don't discuss How much does it cost for them to live in the city in which they live to make those games? How much does it cost them to actually survive in this world? How much is their labor and their skill worth? Over the years, that number has gone up exponentially. And so 
what started as how can we more monetize this to make sure that we either scrub even or keep the doors to the studio open to some of the bigger boys moving into this sort of uh, gambling territory to try to take advantage of some human compulsory needs. This is where I get a little pissy uh, because there have been a bunch of games that have been doing exactly this. And while they claim that you don't have to buy the loot boxes, that you can just beat the game or play the game without ever having to resort to it. The truth of the matter is the games are designed in such a way now where it heavily incentivizes you to do so. The latest culprit of this is Shadows of Mordor. While you can play the game and you can definitely beat the game, it requires a lot of grinding to get to the true ending. Whereas that grind can be lessened if you spend 10, 20, 30 bucks on loot boxes to maybe get a good pull. The core mechanic of the game, which is dominating orcs, has been cheapened. Your orcs die. You might dominate a legendary orc, and he dies in an opening sequence of, of taking a, a, a siege. Why? He's supposed to be this badass orc, and he just evaporates within 10 seconds. Yet, the ones that you mysteriously get out of loot boxes, which you do get them out of loot boxes, seem to last a little bit longer. It's that type of attitude that is causing players, in particular, to feel an excessive amount of burn. This is where we start feeling gamers talking about feeling like they're nickeled and dimed to death. Recently, one of our more favorite studios is closed as a result of this mentality. Runic Studios has closed their doors. They are currently looking for homes for all of the developers and artists and people that worked so hard on all of those games over the, the last several years. Because Perfect World, in a statement that they publicly released, said they wanted to close those doors to move away from what, the, what those games were to focus more on a games as service, meaning they want more money. This is the problem I have. We have these great games out there, and I don't want to say they get ruined, but the experience becomes not player-centric. It doesn't become fun. It doesn't become about player engagement anymore, and the argument of games as service goes away. I don't think it could be called that anymore. We might as well call it online casinos. In other countries, China, even in the UK, you have to disclose odds of getting gear out of boxes because they view it as gambling. Because it is gambling. It preys on our need to keep rolling the dice and maybe getting that, that one extra thing, that, that thing we really want. That's what's killing a lot of these games, a lot of our favorite titles. Assassin's Creed is starting to fall into that territory as well. It, it's becoming unsustainable as a consumer. I have no problem paying you for an expansion. I have no problem giving money to a developer that gives me something pretty to buy that doesn't have any impact on the game as long as I know that I can input my money and get exactly what I want out of it. That is a transaction. That is a deal. That is an agreement between me and you as the developer or the producer of that, that video game. Certain companies are also starting to breach away from that and in this weird gray area, and that's where Blizzard's sort of existing nowadays. With the launch of Heroes of the Storm 2.0, loot boxes are everything. You can no longer buy a skin for a character you like unless it's featured. 
you can't input money, get skin. And the number of featured skins is relatively low unless it's a brand new hero release or a very specific bundle for a holiday. Now, they do do something better, at least a little bit better, where every time you gain a character level or a player level, you get loot boxes, and there are certain events that give them to you, but still, you can no longer input money to get exactly what you want out of it. Joe, can I ask you a question quickly? Absolutely. Okay, so this applies to skin. What about characters, though? You can probably buy characters whenever you want, though, right? You can buy characters with shards, and not all of them, I believe, have the ability to be purchased with gems. So that means that there are some characters that are strictly luck-based as well? Mm -hmm. Not skins, characters. There are certain... You can buy them with the in-game shard currency, which you have to play, but you... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I've been out of the game for a little bit. I kind of go in for a bit when there are promotions and stuff, and then I just run it with with Tristan, but other than that, I'm not going in too much. So since 2.0, I've played some, but not too much. So, So can I... Let's say me. I want to spend the money, cash, actual cash, and I want to buy, uh, a, a, what's the new one that's coming out? Hanzo. Okay, so I want to buy a Hanzo or Alex Straza. That's As long as it's within the first two weeks as they're featured. And then after that, what happens? You can buy them with shards, which is the in-game currency of either getting duplicates or, or things that you get out of loot boxes, which are uh, something you can't buy. It's just something you get. So you, that you in-game currency, you actually can't buy tokens for it so so it's what they have two currencies yes yeah so if i want after those two weeks are over if i want to buy certain characters again not the skins the characters and i'm 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 clarifying that for the audience three currencies yeah see that's the thing i know there's a bunch (laughs) of them and that's why it's so fucking confusing so so let's go let's go through this hold on a second you can buy any of the heroes at any point in time with gold or shards okay gold you earn by doing quests completing events leveling up doing certain things like that. A gold is fairly consistent. However, it requires a lot of gold to unlock a hero. A new hero will run you 10, 15,000 gold. That Most one I know, pl- yeah. Okay, that, that's pretty standard. Even when they go cheaper, you're still looking at like 8,000 gold or something along those lines. Sometimes they go they go on sale for 2,000, 4,000, but again, you have to earn that gold, and that's fine. I have no problem with the gold aspect of it. Shards are Yeah, random. but if I can cut you off there, sure. I will actually argue in, in favor of your earlier comments about this in terms of manipulating gameplay in order to encourage people to buy. It takes you a fucking long time to accumulate the gold in order to buy and unlock the characters. The incentive is there for you just to spend actual money instead. Sure, but at the same point, you can't actually do that for all of the characters. And yeah, that's, just that's, the new ones, yeah. And, and this is why I don't have necessarily a problem with how they do this particular part of it, right? They give you two different ways that you can unlock the heroes with in-game currency, and if it's featured, you can then give money. The fact that you can't just give money for any of them anymore, I do have a problem with. And you're right, it does incentivize you to make that purchase up front, but at least they're trying to keep their player base engaged in playing the game to earn it. I'm okay with that because it's it's not a... For lack of a better term, it's not a pay-to-win model, and you can at least input and get something out of it directly, whether it's in-game currency or not. It's the same thing with, like, Super Mario Odyssey, and I, it, th- which is something that I never thought I would say. Nintendo did something really fucking right here, because in the game, you gather coins and world-specific currency, and then you turn it in for costumes and outfits, direct input and output. There's no random chance on it, right? 
that I'm fine with. The problem comes in when you have certain things like, oh, I'll throw Overwatch into this one. While you can earn in-game currency to spend on certain skins, usually the barrier to pay, let's say the Halloween event that just passed, $3,000 like doll hairs or whatever the hell they call it inside of the game, that's a lot. And not a lot of players have all of that, especially as they've added more things into the game to dilute the pools, which means players don't get his currency as frequently as they do. Exactly. Shit. However, you are incentivized during those pro during those events to spend money on loot boxes to maybe get the skin you want. Yes, you get (laughs) loot boxes from playing, but at the same point, you have a better chance if you spend $20 on loot boxes. And let's be very honest, too, here, and this comes not just from our experiences opening those loot boxes, but also watching countless videos of people doing the same thing, too, especially during those holiday events. It's almost as if the drop rate specifically of legendary skins plummets, and it becomes very, very difficult to get one. I should preface, we don't have any proof of this. This is just anecdotal. It is. It very much is. That's why I'm led with that. But it's just, but it's one of those things where you are very much incentivized to spend money. And again, I can sort of understand that because at least you there's another mechanism to get them. A lot of these games that are coming out, the only way you can get certain things is loot boxes. There are a lot of games that are coming out that unless you spend money, you will never see a certain item. And it cheapens it so much, at least the experience from a player's standpoint. Uh, like again, the shadows of Mordor, there, there are things that you can only get by spending real world money. That's dumb, at least to me. And even then when you spend the real world money, it's not a guarantee. It's a chance. And see, that's, that's where I would say, and, and I think we kind of agree on this anyways, but I don't think it's dumb if you can pay a reasonable amount, let's be clear, and get what you want. and get what you want, even if it's limited, versus the, the 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 gambling to to get it. So let's go to Destiny because that's our our jam right now. If if Tess was selling her outfits, the seasonal outfits that we now know based on the TwitchCon is going to be changing every single season. So if you want that set, you specifically now have to spend real money. Because there's no amount of leveling that's going to definitely get you the entire set. I mean, I let's be honest, I play a lot, and mm-hmm. I've only unlocked a few pieces of the actual gear from Tess. Most of the time, it's shaders or or, but I got or a ton ships of sparrows. Or, or sparrows. Yeah. So, so if instead it was changed to pay us a couple of bucks, maybe as much as five, and you get the entire set. Now we're looking at a way for us as players to say, you know what, it's year two or maybe, maybe three. And our initial investment was 60 bucks or more, depending on what version you got of the game. But that was years ago. I don't have a problem with giving them a few bucks. So you know what, here's 15 bucks. I'll take a set for each of my characters. Boom. Now, I feel like I've done something good to help support them. I get something in return. And everybody's happy. But the way that it's set up now, it's not you're gambling for a chance. And I will not do that, even if it means supporting them. And and that's the thing right there, right? And it's not that we hate these companies and we don't, it's not that we don't want them to succeed. It's just that when you look at it, it it doesn't feel good. It doesn't give you a reward to insert money and get a scratch off and maybe get a chance at winning. 
when there's a whole lot of shit in between you and whatever it is you're looking at getting. Which is why, like, people have been bitching about World of Warcraft's microtransactions for years and their services. And I get that. But at the very least, I can say when I input my money, I'm getting exactly what I want on it, whether it's a mount, a pet, uh, a, a race change, or something along those lines. At least it's a direct transaction. And you want to keep me engaged? If I like your game, if you're doing what you're doing right, I have no problem giving you money. Let's Recently, look at uh, let's look at before. Sorry to cut you off. Guild Wars Two. I was just going to say exactly. That. I mean, we we bought the original game, and then some of us the expansions afterwards. But I can look at Guild Wars Two as the prime example of this, where when I'd first bought it. I had no problems spending real money, be it either on gems because I needed them to do other things or different outfits because I knew, like you said, exactly what I'm getting. And it's like, you know what, guys, I bought one copy. I've been playing for a long time. I've more than gotten my money's worth out of you, especially because I don't have to pay a monthly fee, which for an MMO is freaking damn near unheard of Mm -hmm. especially at that time so it's like you know what here here's some money and i bought gems so that i can get more bag slots not required but a nice perk and those kind of things and i felt good about it because hey i'm supporting you guys meanwhile you're supporting me by giving me cool shit and that's exactly it even uh the creator of uh monster hunter universe that or monster hunter worlds excuse me uh that's coming out they flat out said they're not going to do loot boxes they're not going to do shit like that because they want to create a world where their players are enjoying their time there and choose to spend their time there and if they release cosmetic shit uh later on down the line that's fine but it's such a rare thing to hear a developer nowadays say we're not going to do this and i hate the fact that that's becoming the standout like this is the rarity where a developer says we're not going to do loot boxes or random drops. On the other side of the coin, you have Activision actively making loot boxes a part of the game. Did you know in Call of Duty 2, there is literally a quest to watch somebody open a loot box? I did not know that. <laughs> because I'm serious. Because loot boxes are airdrops in that game that are public spectacles. They open up in front of everybody in that game. Oh, God, that's hysterical. Because that's, they're just—that's a new level. They're swerving into the fucking skid there, and it's—it's it's annoying. And that's not what I want to see. And, and and I'm sorry to rant about this so much, but it—I hate that that's sort of taking over video games, and it's taking over my leisure time. You don't I have, have no problem giving. Well, I'm not to, no, no, I'm just saying, listeners, dude, I've had this on our show notes on my doc that I keep on my desktop for show notes as pending for months to discuss this. <laughs> it was just, let's wait for the right time. Make sure we have all the right I data this is it. and then go from there. And basically runic was the nail in the coffin for me mm-hmm. that it was like, mm, you know what? I keep going back to the same thing. We, we really don't pat ourselves on the back very much saying, you know, we're important because clearly we're not. A lot of people have podcasts kind of things. We're just guys talking about games that we're passionate about or don't like. But here's the thing. As with politics, it's not about who has the loudest voice. It's just about making sure that your voice is heard. And that's what we're doing here. And to sort of bring it, at least from my perspective, home, I understand that studios need to keep their doors open and they need to pay the rising cost of the talent that they're trying to acquire. I totally understand that. 
But here's the thing. At least be upfront with me about what you're doing and what you need and what you want and give me something that I feel that I'm putting value into and getting value out of. If that transaction is direct, I'm a lot more happy to give you my money than feeling like you're trying to squeeze me for it by exploiting the psychological trick of gambling. I'll go you one further, and and then maybe we'll go to Vince to see if he has forgotten to speak completely. Um, But how many copies of Hob did you buy, Joe? I bought, at the end... Eight copies of Hob for people. How many copies do you figure approximately you bought of Bastion? I bought probably that much or more for other people. Here's the thing, and this is not aimed at developers because oh, well, hold, they, on second, hold on a second, hold well, I got one more for you. I have Shovel Knight on every fucking system I own. Well, the the, the catalyst for me thinking of that was because we, Joe and I, we're going to be discussing the Nintendo Switch in a little bit. Maybe, time permitting, <laughs> depending on how much longer this goes. Uh, but we've been looking at the different games available on there. And I spotted the other day that they had the um, the Chess Ultra. What's it called again? Fucking, you Ch- think? Chess Ultra. It is Chess Ultra, yeah. Which I picked up because it works in PSVR, but as I'd mentioned before, looks like shit on fucking PSVR. But just on the PSVR, or sorry, PS4, it looks amazing. And I stream it to my Mac and I love it. It's a great game. It's out on the Switch. There's no microtransactions, at least that I know of, on it. And it's not asking me for money. It's a fucking chess game. But it is so beautifully done and well executed that I was telling Joe. And I and I will be. I'm going to pick it up for the Switch as well. I, I could, if I wanted to, just stream it to my Vita from my PS4, regardless of where I am in the, in the house. But I'm thinking, you know what, the slightly bigger screen plus being able to just touch and move things around and things like that might actually be better. So I'd like to try it. So a good game, regardless of additional DLC, additional microtransactions or loot boxes or anything else, is going to get an additional purchase that's not required, but that I'm doing not just to support them, but because it's worth it. And that's not to say that we that those games are necessarily going to be profitable and this goes to what roger linked earlier for us to peruse and it it tracks with what i've heard from people that i've talked to that do work in the industry like hellblade is often raised as this is how you do it right this is how you you greet the consumers and you greet the 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 studios and developers but the other side of that coin is how much do you have to sell to make a profit how much do you have to sell to even break even and it becomes this very precarious balance between the two so I, i i understand the pressure i'm just saying do it right don't don't be shit sticks about it. Since for me, I'm going to use as an example Street Fighter in that they release, you know, especially with Street Fighter V, they they said you're only gonna have to buy one version of Street Fighter V. They're not gonna do the typical thing where like every year or two they release a new update and you gotta go up, buy another forty to sixty dollar game. They're just releasing characters as DLC and it's right there, you know. You want these characters, you know, twenty bucks for all six of them, or I think it was like four bucks individually and you know costumes hey some of the some of the costumes and stages you can buy with the in-game currency you earn if you don't want to spend the time grinding that out you can spend the cash on the costumes i have spent more money on street fighter costumes just because they look cool than destiny overwatch pretty much any other games with loot box systems combined like i've spent more on costumes for jury than i think i have on the actual game itself 
at this point. It's it's kind of ridiculous. But it goes to the saying of if you create something we like and just let us buy it, we will. Like if there were Street Fighter loot crates, it, I would not be interested, especially because a game like that, you know, it, you're going to get skins for characters you don't like. It's kind of the Overwatch scenario. Like, oh, great. I got a skin for May. I fucking hate playing May. But it's, oh, it's the epic skin. Congratulations. Now I'm not going to get one of those for a character I actually want for another month. But, I mean, loot boxes are kind of just the latest symptom of the problem with game development. And a, a couple years ago, I remember us talking about uh, the new Tomb Raider game and how Square Enix said that that game was a disappointment. Despite the fact that it had sold, I think at that point, two to three million copies, they said that their expectations for that game were somewhere in the range of like eight to 10 million. If your game is selling two to three million copies and it's not a financial success, like that's on the studio. Like you, you didn't budget properly. Like, yes, development costs are increasing, but like you look at what some of the, a lot of these companies do and their marketing budgets are ghastly compared to their development budgets. And then that just increases their expectations. Like we would not have gotten Rise of the Tomb Raider if Microsoft hadn't stepped in and helped help finance it because, you know, they wanted a nice, you know, big Xbox exclusive, at least for however long it was. And, you know, they threw money at Square to uh, get that game made. And it's like... Uh, I think we talked about Runic and uh, what was the other studio that made Gigantic that got shut down by Perfect World? Montego. Yeah. Just a week ago, EA shut down Visceral, mm-hmm. where Visceral made Dead Space, which was, in my eyes, one of, if not the best game of the previous generation. I still adore that game to this day. And in the middle of development of a, another major title, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we're getting to. That, uh, it was a small game and it did well, well enough to get a sequel greenlit. But then, you know, it's these large companies that they're not content with making a profit. They want all of the profit. You're not allowed to just make money. You, you need to make your money and then another share on top of that to be considered successful. So we get Dead Space 2, which was still a phenomenal game in a lot of ways better than the original, you had stuff that the developer said they were forced to include in the game by EA with like multiplayer modes and DLCs and stuff that they didn't want to, but that that was, they had to pay the piper to get the game made. And then Dead Space 3 came out and you could see those fingers creeping in even farther where they completely changed the game to be more focus group approved, you know, co-op action, chest high wall shooter instead of, a good horror experience that the first two games were. So when they shuttered Visceral, Visceral was working on a fucking Star Wars game. Yes, it was a single-player-focused, story-driven Star Wars game that was not going to have this game-as-service stuff that EA was also going to be expecting from Battlefront. But you cannot tell me that you can't put out a Star... You cannot make a profit on a Star Wars game. That's not, not just a Star Wars game, part. A, a Star Wars game created by Amy Hennig. I yeah. mean, th- that there was the reason to buy that game for a lot of people, myself included, because I'm looking at it as this is fucking 
uncharted royalty here that's not going to be working on an IP that, while you're not a ridiculous over-the-top fan, no offense to ridiculous over-the-top fan, (laughs) but, you know, I like it, but I'm not dressing up in cosplay or anything, but it's like, I would love an Amy Hennig game in that IP. That, to me, was like, I am dying to play that game. That would be amazing. And now it's like, nope, not going to happen because no loot boxes. Well, fuck but, you but, guys. Well, Vince, is, Vince is right, though. This is just the latest symptom of something that's been plaguing us for years. And you can go back to the days of Farmville or, you know, any of the, the Facebook right. shit. I, I think that's a lot of it. Look. Like, look at how much money some of these yeah. games are making. And you get... Because yeah, you, all, yeah, you need to make Warner this Brothers. extra move. So you spend $5 to make this new move. You're like... Yeah, like why? Money why can't is. one of our games make six billion dollars? Do exactly. just do what they're doing. That's and I'm not defending those mobile games either because that's a predatory practice as well. But you can't take a business practice in a free to play phone game and transplant it into your sixty dollar big budget home game and expect it to work because it doesn't. It, well, it might. For a little while, well, and well, here's we're, the problem, we're reaching though. that point. But here's the problem: it, it, it's not that it's not working. I know it is working. That's what is. That's the problem. The most it's it, that's it's becoming so profitable because we we as gamers gamers are playing into this. And again, I I, I liken it to that predatory mentality of humans gamble by nature. We we just do, and some people are more prone to it than others. But everybody does it. And for all these listening that say, I've never fallen prey to that bullshit. Do you ever play Magic the Gathering when you were a kid before you could buy singles? Remember how many packs you bought to get that one card? Congratulations. You were gambling that entire time. I'm not going to lie. Like I bought that uh, special engram that test sells because it was like three bright engrams and a bunch of dust for I think it was 10 bucks. I was like, that sounds like a deal to me. I'll buy it. I knew what I was doing. I have not bought any bright engrams since because I'm. No, but I saw a deal and I was like, you know what? Only 10 bucks. I'm really enjoying this game. Maybe I'll get something cool. Okay. But there are people who cannot curb that impulse Mm -hmm. and the developer, not the developers, the publishers know this and don't care. So, and I'll say this one final thing and then I'm going to be done on this topic because I could talk about this for hours and hours Start if any developers that are there, any game developers out there that happen to be listening to this or or happen to have this thrown in front of them, I will gladly give you my money if you give me what I want. And that is an experience that's enjoyable in fun, cosmetic, pretty fucking shit that looks cool on my fucking character that doesn't matter worth the fucking gameplay. That doesn't alter the fucking gameplay. I will gladly give you money if you make a good game and you give me something fun to give you money to keep going. That's what I want. You want to do games of service? Go back to the root of games of service. Provide a fucking service that we want. Let us pay directly for it. And with that, because we're not done bitching, we are going to switch over to BlizzCon. (laughs) (laughs) Now that the warm-up's out of the way, let's get real angry. Because, man, I am just itching to go now. Um... BlizzCon is an interesting time of year because one of two Blizzard things happens. fans, oh, I'm not, well, you'll get your chance, <laughs> motherfucker. You just hold on. Because <laughs> you're part of the problem, mister. And I say that with a laugh, obviously, but you kind of are. Oh, and, and I will say that because response. now, uh, 
we've we've been doing this podcast again and we're going on it's not long before we're a decade. We've been doing this for a long time. So we've talked about Blizzard games a lot over the years. Podcast and is the second longest relation in my life. Yeah, really. <laughs> the um the the thing that's important to note, obviously, is that all of us are still Blizzard fans in terms of certain games and different things at different points over the years. We've all played them. We've all loved different ones at different times. Some of us more than others, and that's fine. And what I have found, though, unfortunately, is that, again, and it's going to offend some people, but too fucking bad. It's kind of hard to talk to Blizzard fans sometimes objectively about a game, especially around now, BlizzCon. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. This isn't a Blizzard fan problem. This I think is it a is. Blizzard fan, Nintendo fan, inserts fan <laughs> blank problem i disagree i here i actually disagree respectfully but i disagree because i have found a lot more resistance in conversations regarding blizzard ips especially around blizzcon as opposed to every other game i think that there's a lot more acceptance that is occurring console wise while there's still a lot of animosity certainly a lot of joking back and forth i think there's more acceptance just because so many more people just have multiple consoles now. So it's not like, you know, you're not going to bitch with somebody and be Sony forever if you have a Sony and an Xbox. (laughs) I'm not putting Sony and Microsoft fans on that same level. I'm saying there are certain companies like Blizzard, like Nintendo, Nintendo, like Valve, that draw an extra level out of their fans. But what I'm saying is I think that Blizzard is at the top of that. I And I could be wrong. That's an opinion. You, you might be, you might not be. I don't know how to quantify that. Yeah, I just, it's, I just find that's the case with, with Blizzard. And, and in a way it's good because they have fostered such loyalty from their fan base that i'm not done hold on a second well no i will disagree with you maybe they earned it but not to that degree because it becomes a blind loyalty as well Mm -hmm. and and i'm not saying that because i think that everybody should follow my opinion no 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 that's not what i'm saying everybody obviously it's subjective everybody will have different opinions and some people justifiably love everything but that's a pretty small percentage. And I find that it's hard to speak objectively, especially at BlizzCon, about their announcements. Because when I looked at everything that was announced, there was next to no excitement. In terms especially for the WoW expansion. Joe and I had talked about this before the uh, the event even started the intro. And I was saying, you know what? It will have to be something really amazing for me to want to go in i've played every expansion but i'm at a point now where i'm not even thinking i don't even want to go in game i haven't played for months and i there's literally no interest which for me is a little rare there's always still that little hmm i'd like to go in and fucking level 100 just for shits and giggles or run some old raid or whatever just for again shits and giggles none of that now so I will, I personally needed something pretty spectacular. And what I got was, in my opinion, a filler. Basically just a concocted uh, fight, a concocted faction battle without much story to back it up or to justify it. And it just felt so manufactured and just 
I I so was so unimpressed. It was unbelievable. And that's just let's one frame of this real quick because your 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 opinion on it is definitely valid. But let's let's state what it is. This is the next expansion reveal that that Roger is talking about during the opening ceremonies, which is the battle for Azeroth, and it is going back to this whole idea of the factions going to war with each other and trying to make this epic thing of each continent going to one of the factions and that's it, including events like the burning of Teldrassil. It sounds more epic than what I've seen. And don't get me wrong, the opening sequence was cool. I liked seeing Sylvanas being a badass. I'd like seeing uh, Anduin being a badass, but it's very men. I agree with Roger on this one that it feels almost like a filler it feels like that interstitial expansion like Warlords was. It doesn't have that same level of excitement or epicness that Legion had when it was unveiled. It sort of just feels like an in-between. The only thing that is even keeping any bit of my interest in it is simply that Christy Golden is on their payroll now and is writing the book that leads up into it and, from my understanding, has had say in the direction of the story of the next expansion. That's it. I'm not excited like I was for Legion. I, I'm... And this is the first time I've seen this ever. And and Roger can roll back the tape about how, how excited I have been for so many of these expansions. I feel very meh, right? What's funny is that I was, uh, I of course, I watched it live as well. And I was following Twitter and I was watching with my son. And we watched that cinematic. And it was one of those where both of us were talking. And I'm so glad my son is intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Because we're watching this and and we're both agreeing, and it's not because I'm forcing him to agree because he's saying the same things I am without prodding. We're in the trailer was impactful because mm-hmm. it was a trailer about a war scene. War scenes in and of themselves tend to be impactful to us as a human species because they tend to portray people who are at the in epic moments of either glory or failure or uh, getting support from others that they, to show that we all rely on each other in life, all of these important quote unquote life lessons that we learn, all these things that stir up the human souls were in there, but no fucking substance. There was no nothing that actually spoke to the reason for this other than we've always hated each other. So we're going to bash each other's heads in. And there was fuck all. And it felt like whatever they would actually introduce as a reason for it would be manufactured and forced. Because even the comments that Silvana says during that trailer, if you listen to what she's saying, feels very forced. It's like well, we've forgotten what it's like to be, to, you know, oh, how does she word it again? I can't remember exactly. But it was like I was listening and thinking, Oh my God, that's so fucking forced. Like that's, it's horrible. And then the more I heard and I stopped listening at a point, not, not the intro, but when some of the other things that they were talking about, it was like, no, there at this point, there's quite literally, it doesn't sound like there'll be anything that can change my mind about this. It feels very much like, and and I hate to say this knowing now that Christy Golden may have had a hand in the questing, but it feels like lazy writing. For at well, least no, that portion. It's it's beyond that, right? And it, it's not necessarily lazy writing. It's an incomplete starting point. And, and I thought about this for a while after seeing the, the trailer. And there again, there are very cool moments in there. There's Sarfang going and beating the shit out of people. You see Jen Greymane do, doing all this, this cool stuff. 
You see Anduin doing cool stuff. You see Sylvanas doing cool stuff. But that's it. It's just a, a collection of cool things that occur. Exactly. Because they are expecting that you're going to read the book before you go into the expansion. So we've hit the sort of level where that opening sequence for all of the expansions up to this point told the starting point. Like, let's go to back to Wrath of the Lich King with that that opening cinematic with Arthas and the raising of Ice Crown Citadel and the speech that he gives uh, about, you know, his life up to that point becoming the Lich King. It was fucking powerful. It revved you up. It got you going and it set the story. Mist of Pandaria, whether you liked it or not, did the same thing. It set up the, the expansion. Legion set up the expansion. The failed Warlords expansion, as far as I'm concerned, their opening cinematic still set up the expansion. This does not set it up. This starts in the middle of the setup. And that's it's a very interesting distinction to make. And one that I'm not happy about. Because if you're going to lead me into an expansion, give me something meatier. Give me something that matters. Give me something that's not just designed to, to tug on my heartstrings, like you said, because of human conditioning. Give me something that makes motivation happen for my character. And Vincent, do you actually play in. the last expansion? Oh, God, no. I haven't played since Cataclysm. Okay. But... I, looking at this from the outside perspective, like I can see that, you know, we, this is just the next cycle. Like how many times have the Horde and Alliance, you know, renewed their battle only to the next expansion have to come together to fight, you know, a bigger threat. But then after that expansion, oh no, we got to fucking kill each other again. Like this is what I see is just this cycle repeating over and over again, which yes, that is kind of the core of the Warcraft franchise of okay these races are at war but you can't always be at war that that there's gonna have to be a middle ground but you can do that when you put out a new game every five six or so years but when you're in this expansion cycle like there's just a lack of what i feel is creativity and yes you can have phenomenal writing from christy golden and the story team like i'm sure a lot of the story and the quest lines are going to be in a vacuum well-written, well-executed, and very interesting. But if it's starting from a lazy idea that probably wasn't Christy Golden's idea, let's be honest, it probably came down from, you know, somebody a little higher than that, said, okay, this is what we're doing with the next expansion, write a story for it. Well, so it it's just, I see it as being uninspired and just, okay, we're back to the top of the wheel now. Where, okay, that's next problem, expansion, right? it's going to be, okay, you know, an elder god or who the fuck knows that the Horde and Alliance are going to have to make peace and come back together again. Like I just, that's just how I view it. And and I think you're right. And, and having that outsider perspective looking in and, and me having to step back because I am very much a blizzard fanboy in a lot of cases, I will freely admit this. It, even I had to take a look, a step back and look at it because while there's some cool stuff that they show after that initial trailer, like story beats that are very clearly introduced in the novel leading up to it, like Jaina coming back and things like that, things that I actually do care about and feel that might have some substance. They're not in that trailer. They're not in that moment. So if that trailer can't exist in a vacuum and say, here's what's going on, here's the lead in it, it you're, I think it's like you said, it, it almost comes across as derivative. I'm just going to say one more thing and then we'll move on to the rest of what was at BlizzCon. In my opinion, I think that now, and they should have been planning this beforehand, but 
Now's the time to be announcing actually WoW 2. If you've got Christy Golden on your staff to be helping to shape the lore of these characters and of this world, I think that starting from scratch now, abandoning what has happened and kind of playing more with what you can do with the fluidity of factions and all kinds of different stuff. I think that now is the prime time for them to be giving serious consideration to a wow to in whatever form that may take. Which might not necessarily be, you know, thing for them to do. No, I I would (laughs) say like that might be kind of where they're going. Cause when I looked at a lot of the other information coming out about this expansion, a lot of it reads to me like World of Warcraft, the fan service edition with fan favorite characters coming back after some mm-hmm. time away. The addition of the air quotes allied races, that you know, things that people have been wanting for a long time. Also, no coincidence that, you know, they announced the legacy servers, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Like mm. it, it this feels in a lot of ways to me of like, OK, this expansion is World of Warcraft, the greatest hits collection, because they might be kind of working on that. Wow, too. Well, I would argue that Legion was more the greatest hits. This is sort of like the wind down, if anything. Yeah, yeah. It's yes, exactly. It, but it's but it's so- it's the it's the the final episode of the series after all the cool shit has happened when you get to see like you know the stuff that you you know, it's the montage at the end where you see who gets married and you know, all that stuff. And, and that's not to say that I'm not going to play it because well I'm not going to lie I'm pr- going to still play it. But you're, you guys are right there. There are more things that were revealed during uh, BlizzCon, which Vince talked about a little bit here. And I think it bears repeating before we move away from Warcraft is that there are going to be legacy servers, vanilla or classic. Wow. Whatever the hell you want to call it. They're standing them up. And the interesting thing about this, and, and I had initial reservation about this because we've talked about this before. Uh, and I was very, very upset because I felt like after seeing the introduction for the new expansion and then hearing that, I'm like, oh, you fuckers pulled some of the team away to work on that shit, didn't you? Turns out they didn't. They're actually hiring a whole brand new team to work exclusively on the vanilla servers. But I'm one of those people where if you wanted this and you're going to play it great, I'm going to sit here with a bag of popcorn and listen to your tears when you can't fly an old Azeroth. <laughs> When, when you can't get off that taxi that you accidentally hit the one in Silithus when you meant to go to Feralis. Oh, dude, I forgot about that. <laughs> Where, you don't have the gold to fly back. Hold, hold on a second. When you can't pay for that respec cost because it costs more money every time you go to your trainer yep. and respec because you put a point in the wrong fucking talent, I'm going to be there with a bag of popcorn. When you can't afford that mount at max level, when you can't afford that at a max level, 40, level fuck, at 40. <laughs> at level 40. Because gold is real hard to come by back then. Friends. I didn't Let have an epic you. mountain until Burning Crusade. Neither did I. <laughs> when when you have none of the quality of life improvements that you're so accustomed to, let me know if it's still something you want. And I'm not saying that vanilla was a bad time. I have a I was waxing poetic about this earlier. It wasn't the game that made vanilla special. It was the players and the memories we created. It was the community. It was the time, too. It was the time because nothing else was like it. It was so much better than EverQuest. 
uh, could ever hope to be at the time. And it was a game that was finding its direction. Well, I think it's important to note that, again, very much of its time, and we all remember that, Mm -hmm. if if we were to look at and and think of it very objectively, I know we've argued about it before, and I, I still maintain, if if while Vanilla came out today, even taking into consideration the attached IPs and the, the Blizzard fan base, I know it would do all right, but I don't think I don't it would think be the success that it was then. Because of that rival, it was the freaking Bulls versus Lakers kind of yes. thing from the 80s of the the EverQuest versus, well, which one is going to win? And you're rooting for the underdog of the World of Warcraft because uh, EverQuest 2 isn't going to be nearly as good as or impactful as EverQuest was. And it was of that time. And I think people forget that. So the it's announcement of Vanilla, you know what? Yeah, have fun. I'm not doing it. Same here. I'll keep my memories where they are, where, where they're still good, where yep. they're not tainted by horrible systems or antiquated systems. But for those that are going to enjoy it or that you want it, go for it. And you know what? Actually, I'm going to say this, too. If it doesn't cost you anything more than your normal monthly sub to go play on these servers, go do it. Try it. See what it was back in ye olden days. I'll be here on my rocking chair <laughs> back and forth with sipping my, my tea, smoking my pipe. Just talking about, yep, that's how it used to be, uphill both ways in the snow, because that's how it was back then. Experience that, and then appreciate how far things have come from since then. But, moving that on. was sort of the... I'm sorry? I was saying, moving on to other Blizzard stuff from BlizzCon. Okay. Actually, while we're still on World of Warcraft, I have, <laughs> I have a question. Motherfuck. No, this is, this okay. is legitimately... Okay. I, with the new allied races that they're introducing... I, don't ask me to name any of them other than the Dark Iron Dwarves, you know, the Tauren and the Night Elves and all them, where, you know, once you've allied with them in game, you're able to actually make one of those as a playable mm-hmm. character. Yep. Those characters, if I'm not mistaken, are starting at level 20. They start at level 20 and they have entirely separate experiences specifically for those races that you can then level up. And then if you go to the new level cap, if you level them physically to 120, uh, you get a special set of heirloom armor for that that race that you can use on any of your characters because it is um, set agnostic, I think is what they called mm-hmm. it, where a cloth wearer can wear it, a male wearer can wear it, whatever. Um, the, although they did also confirm that for those of you that just want to pay the money to race change into one once you unlock their their story, you can just race change into that. Okay, because that, that that I didn't know like it was a different experience. Because I I hear like yes, you get to you know create one of these characters at level twenty out of one hundred and twenty, yes. and I look at that daunting mountain. I was like, oh, this is just how they're going to sell leveling tokens or, or characters. Well, no, tokens. because you only get the you only get the heirloom armor from physically leveling them. You don't get it if you boost. But them. but how long can we expect it to physically level those characters from twenty to one twenty? It's actually really quick leveling. Well, that's that's the weird thing, right? Like. Over the years, leveling is super fucking quick now. So easy. Now, actually, and this is actually something interesting that I will say, too, about this. Their role, not to go back into the Warcraft thing, but this is actually something cool that they did talk about that wasn't part of the reveal, but as part of the systems that systems conversation panel that came after. So, you know, how in Legion, we talked about how you can go to any zone at any level, and it was completely set, like it would phase to your level. They're rolling that back to all of the old content. Oh, for Oh, okay. That's good, actually. Yeah. So, <laughs> sorry, I misunderstood you what you were saying there for a minute. <laughs> so, what you can do is you can you can as you're leveling these new characters, you can go literally anywhere. Oh, 
that's actually good. That's and the, so, like, Jesus, Guild Wars 2 did that right from the get-go. Yes, they did. And so, like, um, there's also going to be, like, bracket ranges for, like, Outland and Northrend. So, like, that's going to be 60 to 80. And you can literally go to any of those zones in either of them between 60 and 80. Nice. Like, they're doing they're doing it in chunks, but you can literally go anywhere. And it, it's actually, it's good. And with all the improvements that they've given over the years for leveling, whether it's heirloom gear um, or bonuses, leveling goes a lot quicker than you think it would. Like going from level 20 to 110 is probably less than a week's worth of work. Oh, definitely. Jesus. Right, fair enough. It's, it's actually fairly easy. I, I, I didn't do a bunch of alts in, uh, in Legion, but I did a couple. And that's one of the things that I've always liked to do is leveling alts kind of thing. And it's really amazingly easy. So you will be able to experience something get these characters up. If you don't want to just race change, you can actually build one up yourself and, and sort of do that whole thing pretty fucking quickly. So I will give them credit for that. They're making, they're trying to make that experience easier on the players for older content because they, they understand there's people like me that I fucking hate outland. I don't like leveling in outland anymore. I've seen enough of that fucking place, but I don't have zero problem with Northrend because I haven't been through there nearly enough as far as I'm concerned. Okay, but we seriously need to move on from World of Warcraft. <laughs> <laughs> we did get we did get the announcement of the new expansion for Hearthstone, which actually looks pretty funny. Um, it, what is it called? Kobolds and something. Once again, catacombs, like yeah, that. or caverns. Ca- caverns, yeah, something. It's, it sounded. It felt very much like a stopgap in the same way as the WoW expansion did for me, at but least. The thing for me is it's it's almost like I liken it to the Magic: The Gathering unhinged set. It's just weird. And I, I, I don't necessarily hate that concept, especially in the game like Hearthstone. I think that's okay-ish uh, because it's all the classic D&D tropes. Like, so that's why it's Caverns of Cobalt, Dungeons and Dragons. Ha-ha! Uh, so I think that I actually like the concept of it. Um, I, execution, that's a whole other story. We'll see what happens there. Yeah. Beyond that, we also got the new Overwatch hero, which was pretty intriguing, actually. Uh, Moira, who surprisingly enough is a hero archetype of a healer that I've been begging for in an MMO for years. She does damage and heals. Basically, she sucks life away from one and like an enemy to give health to an ally. Uh, And she is a Blackwatch character as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how she uh, plays from everybody that played her on the floor. I hear that she is a blast. I think it's hysterical that once again, Devs spend so long working on, be it characters or different things and all that, and then they release it and find out that somebody else grabs everybody's attention. Nobody gives a rat's ass about Moira. Reinhardt's daughter? They want her in the fucking game. That's Torbjorn's daughter, actually, right? I thought it was Torbjorn. It is Torbjorn's daughter. Oh, I thought it was Reinhardt's daughter. No, that's Torb's daughter. That's Torb's oldest daughter. She works as the uh, the Master of Relics or whatever it is for so, yeah. The Last Crusade. Dude, that's all I've seen in my Twitter stream. <laughs> yes. I've barely seen anymore. Nobody cares about that. Everybody's saying, when do we get her? I want her. When do we get this t-shirt? I want that t-shirt. Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> that aside, I will give them credit for something cool with Moira. She has a David Bowie skin. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. it looked awesome. She has, I, she has totally a Ziggy Stardust skin, and I'm all about that life. Yeah. I really like that this finally puts to rest the what did Mercy do to create Reaper (laughs) conspiracy theories because she finally she flat out has a voice line that says I created you. Well, also in that little motion comic origin story they did, they show her actually experimenting on Reyes. Yeah. 
which I think is cool. I think that's absolutely, absolutely a blast. Um, we Roger mentioned this a little bit earlier to moving on to Heroes of the Storm. Uh, we do have two new heroes coming in. We have Hanzo for all the Hanzo mains that really, really, really miss him when they're not playing Overwatch. Uh, and they actually have Alexstrasza, which I think is actually a pretty cool addition as far as, as champions go, because she is a support, and I love supports in that game. And some of her stuff is really, really cool, and her ultimate turns her into a fucking dragon, because fucking dragons. And the other big announcement was that StarCraft II is going to be completely free to play. Kinda. Well, the latter is the online play is going to be completely free, and you're mm-hmm. going to have access to all of the content from all the expansions in online play. The campaign, if you don't own the first game, Wings of Liberty is free. If you own Wings of Liberty, Heart of the Swarm is free, which I think is actually kind of cool. Because yeah, I, I, I I'm OK with it because I never played Heart of the Swarm either <laughs> in, because I didn't feel like spending money on a Zerg expansion when I don't like Zerg. Now, and here's the interesting thing, going back to one of our earlier conversations, because the holiday season's coming up and sales happen to all the time on these things. This means that since I'll have the second one free, since I already own Wings of Liberty, I might actually buy the third expansion just to play through the campaign because why the fuck not at this point? Yeah, Yeah, I'm with you on that. (laughs) Other than that, there really wasn't a whole lot of big news from BlizzCon, surprisingly enough. Uh, Although I will, I I will take this opportunity to selfishly say congratulations to uh, Lanesta, who her boyfriend proposed to her while she unveiled her Moira cosplay at BlizzCon. So congratulations to you. And I hope you two have a long and happy life. The only thing I hate about that is because some dude taking the 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 the, the limelight away from some a, a woman who's doing something awesome. They're doing something awesome. It's like I'm going to steal this moment away from you. Oh, they're you know what? They're, they're they're they were so happy. It was great. Yeah, it made the yeah. moment even better. Okay, we're going to move away from Lizcon. Vince. You are going to go like rapid fire here. You got three bullet points: World of Final <laughs> Fantasy, Spider Man, and Destiny Two. You're on. Go. All right, so World of Final Fantasy, Roger and I's, if not Game of the Year 2016, it was in the top three, I recall. Fucking right. Came out on PS Vita and PS4, and starting on November 21st, you can get it on Steam. So buy it. Buy it, yes. Buy it, if you it like is freaking awesome. Pokemon-style games of collecting monsters, uh, a lot of real good strategy in the combat as far as organizing your teams and setting up your combinations, as well as a cute world with fan favorite characters that as Roger has proven, you don't actually have to know who they are to really get into it. And at the end of the day, also a damn good story to being told throughout all of it. Fantastic story. Great zones. And the, we've talked about this often for a pocket monster collecting game. I actually feel that this is the best so far. And I'm putting that above Nino Kuni for me, which is like hollowed ground like this is a fantastic game give it a shot for sure all right next up more on spider-man we just talked about him last week with the paris games week but uh came across an interview with the guys from insomniac that uh went into a little more depth on mary jane's role in the game uh she is not fashionista club owner model movie star what have you that she's typically been portrayed as in this game mary jane is actually a reporter for the daily bugle and is very instrumental in the story as far as uncovering uh, Martin Lee's drug trade and all that, which great. Like, I love that they're making MJ a little more active and they're playing loose with the canon. But, you know, making MJ a reporter, I'm OK with that. It doesn't really, really? change the character. It's gonna be MJ. Yeah, but it's a reporter again. 
How many times do we have to have the love interest being a reporter, a Hold female reporter? Hold on a second there. Oh, man. In the comics, in the comics, and Vince can back me up on this as well, even when she did the reporter scene, she was anything but the damsel in distress. And it looks like they're following that. That, that is one thing. I didn't, I didn't say damsel that. in de- distress once. You were leaning. No, I wasn't. No, 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 no. I was not leaning towards that at all. I was saying, why can't they be more creative in their writing so that they come up with a better reason for the female lead to be investigating this, investigating that person or whatever, or just be fucking intelligent that they can figure shit out. The idea of the lowest lane and the, uh, what's the, the one that, uh, Bruce, uh, Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale. And now this. The idea of the female, quote unquote, love interest also being a reporter. That's it. Not a damsel in distress, a reporter. I've had it with that trope. I think that the trope works if the if it's because she's intelligent and driven and that's how she gets doors open for her, which if they follow what was written in the comics, that's what it is. It's not that she's just there because she's the love interest. It's there because she's badass. I still remember a comic book where she's the one that took down the bad guys before Spider-Man ever got there because she was busy investigating what could have been potentially a robbery to begin with. Like, if they do something like that, I'm fine. Again, this is a personal thing, and it has no bearing on whether they're badass or not. It ha- Or if they're a damsel in distress. It has everything to do with... Don't be lazy with your writing and come up with something more creative than just, oh, the love interest is a reporter. That's my take. Fair enough. All that said, <laughs> they were discussing that, yes, the, the bulk of the game is, of course, going to be Spider-Man, uh, both Peter and Miles, although they were very tight lipped on exactly what Miles's role is going to be. But there's also going to be gameplay elements where you're just Peter. Uh, kind of relevant with the Telltale Batman games. There's certain things Batman can do. There's certain things Bruce can do. Just like there's certain things Spider-Man can do and certain things Peter can do. But also that Mary Jane is also going to be playable in certain segments. And it's going to change up the gameplay. going to be a lot more like detective style game st- stuff. So I, I I like that they're putting a lot of wrinkles in there. That more It's more than just web slinging. And I appreciate that. Yep. Finally, uh, more information on Curse of Osiris that we didn't get a chance to cover uh, last show because it hadn't been publicly released all the information. Uh, a lot of the the details on exactly what we can expect uh, beyond what we've heard about the infinite uh, forest and all that, they're raising the power cap from 305 to 330. But what I found more interesting is they're actually raising the character level cap as well from 20 to 25, which why? Why? There's literally no reason for those extra five levels. You're not going to get extra abilities to spend your points on. I, I feel it's just a told us yet. I, it strikes me as more of a we're releasing an expansion. Our players are going to expect the level cap to increase. So let's just throw them five useless levels so they don't complain when we don't. That's kind of how I take it, because honestly, there's quite literally because of the light level mechanic in the game. There's no reason for it. There's literally no reason for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so. Unless it's to keep you from getting engrams for those five levels. Yeah, five bright engrams. (laughs) (laughs) And then some of the more story stuff with uh, a a lot of the characters we can expect to come across. Of course, Osiris is going to be central. Uh, Brother Vance is going to return as one of the acolytes of Osiris. Uh, People who played Destiny 1 would recognize him as he was the NPC from the Trials of Osiris. 
as well as the best character for the expansion is going to be Osiris's ghost, Sagira, which is continuing Destiny's Firefly reunion by being voiced by Morena Bakarin. Dude! No! Dude! <laughs> all right, all right. That is freaking awesome. <laughs> Uh, they they said she's kind of going to be your contact, uh, guiding you through the missions. So she's going to be your Zavala for this expansion. Dude, we need, you know what would be perfect? If in one of the expansions, Sweeper Bot turns to you at one point, and it's freaking Alan Tudyk who docks. <laughs> <laughs> that would be priceless. And then he gets crushed by a cabal drop. Yes. <laughs> oh, dude, Alan Tudyk as like a sweeping robot that gets impaled during an yes, invasion. That would be awesome. <laughs> And another thing I found interesting, uh, because I never did Trials of Osiris on uh, Destiny 1, because I wasn't super into PvP, and you had to be super into PvP to play Trials of Osiris. Uh, the social area that you're going to be able to play in, the Lighthouse, is actually the place that you could go if you had a perfect run in Trials of Osiris. So, like, it, it's actually part of the original game that they're they're bringing in here and opening up to all players now, because... Perfect Trials runs now go to a completely different place in Destiny 2. So I, I enjoy that uh, they're doing that because they're, they're from what I heard, there was some weird shit going on <laughs> at the lighthouse. Tristan is dying to freaking do Trials. So we're going to be doing that together at some point. We've been doing a lot of stuff together now. We're doing uh, Nightfall Strikes and whatnot. We're looking at doing some tonight with Joe. And uh, like we're prepping literally for raid. Whether the rest of the clan is ready or not, fucking my son and I will be ready for fucking raids. I've got at least confirmation of two other people ready for raids. I know. I was telling him, too. I said, like, I mean, we've got a bunch of people now that are higher level. Uh, Allie's been streaming with some as well. Allie's pushing hard, too. I know she wants to fucking raid. We'll have fun with her, and eventually you'll get up there. So, yeah, we are fucking, we're doing this, and we're very much looking forward to it. And then one other little thing that uh, I noticed that is an interesting phrasing choice that they're using in their promotion here that uh, you're going to have new quests, new missions, new adventures, a new strike. They don't say a new raid. They specifically say new raid content, which implies to me that there's going to be new chambers actually opened on the Leviathan. Right. Because the whole that point of sense, yeah. the Leviathan is emperor Kalis wants you to prove himself to him or prove yourself to him like all of the stuff leading up to him it's not you know you have to fight your way through security no he lets you in the front gate and he puts you through these various trials before he deems you worthy of an audience with him so i i i think it's actually going to be interesting of like just putting new trials and stuff into the existing raid content it's a going to save them a little bit on the budget side, uh, but they they can put out some more interesting content without having to completely design something from the ground up with all new enemies, all new environments. They can just focus on making cool encounters, which Destiny raids are one hundred percent cool encounters. So with that, we are actually going to wrap it up for the episode. Thank you very much for joining us. Next week, we actually are going to touch a little bit more on the Switch because both Joe and I actually got the um, Mario Odyssey bundle, and we have some things to say about it. <laughs> We've been chatting back and forth, mm -hmm. and not just in terms of the the Mario game, clearly, but also the Switch itself, some surprises therein, including the eShop that they have. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that surprisingly I'm really kind of digging about this console there's a few things not so much but there's actually a surprising amount that 
I'm not so mad at myself for purchasing it when I was high on painkillers one night. <laughs> so we are going to be talking a little bit more about that next week. So hang tight and we will have some fun for that. We have a feature coming up. Professor Pogue is going to be giving us yet another history lesson in Destiny 2. You can find us on Twitter at For the Lore Individually. Joe is Loader at J. Vincent Simodian. Marty, who is absent. <laughs> is Officer Gleason and I am Zen Buddhist and you can leave us your thoughts on iTunes and Stitcher and with that we will see you guys next week actually on fucking Tuesday tomorrow we're doing a fucking shadow run but who cares I care <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay that's it I'm done <laughs>
the cabal themselves are minimum 800 pounds, long-lived monstrosities that resemble a cross between a rhinoceros and a sea turtle. Their, gra their initial cabal prime has a high-gravity, high-pressure uh, world, which means they exist in pressure suits, and when you shoot their heads, oil flies out. And that oil helps regulate their pressure, helps uh, pass along data connections and data speed, and is hackable by a ghost. And you can make it toxic. You can make it explode. You can do all sorts of fun stuff with it. Uh, thanks, Asher Mir. In contrast, like I said before, the Scion are slighter, smaller, but uh, overwhelmingly powerful with psychic energy. Um, they should be of much interest to warlocks. Some of these Scions, known as Arc Flayers, or Scion Flayers, excuse me, uh, have the ability to access Arc, Solar, and Void, and are also able to telepathically hack into even Golden Age CPUs and operating systems. That is of concern to us. Scions, if they got too close to, say, Rasputin, the remaining Warmind, or they somehow rebooted one of our other Warminds, that would be bad for us. Very, very bad for us. Both Cabal and Scion forces wield slug throwers, but there's also grenade launchers. Uh, Scions have been seen to take uh, uh, power from the Taken, and use that to empower Cabal shields that make it much more difficult to kill their commanders. This is a threat that has been neutralized, but once somebody learns something, it's really hard to kill an idea. It's not so hard to kill a Scion. You shoot them in the head. Um, oh, that's the other thing I forgot to mention. Uh, sorry, it's a little bit hazy this morning. Uh, Cabal have two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. You know, their mouth is weirdly structured, but whatever, it works for them. Scions have uh, one giant eye with a Y-shaped pupil. They're incredibly alien. Um, just as alien as the Fallen or uh, monstrous as the Hive, but apparently significantly more intelligent than the average Hive or possibly even thought Fallen. Uh I want to give you guys a quick note about the politics and military structure of the Cabal. The Cabal is structured in terms of legions and brigades. Once a legion or a brigade is sent out from the Empire, they are exiled until they return. Uh, very similar to the ancient Greeks and the Spartans, return, on your return with your shield or on it. Um, it's the same structure for the Cabal. Uh, the legions owe their loyalty to their dominus. Uh, and every legion has a commander, and they also swear loyalties of blood brotherhood, uh, bonds of loyalty that are so strong that they are willing to blow up the entire solar system to make their point. Um, they didn't blow it up, but uh, roughly two years ago, uh, according to Guardian reports, they had wired the dreadnought in orbit around Saturn to explode, the resulting paracausal energy would rip the solar system into oblivion. That would have been a bummer for all of us in this room, uh, because we would all be dead. <clears throat> Sorry, my circuits are a little bit fried this morning. Uh, the Cabal technology, they, while not that sophisticated when it comes to computers and encryption, unless it's run by a Scion, 
uh, they do have access to weapons that can make suns go supernova, uh, that fire uh, electro bolts and solar-based projectiles that rip through force fields and destroy armor. Uh, they are able to travel faster than light. All of these are pointing in the direction of paracausal technology um, that they have developed on their own without the help of the Traveler. Uh, we know that the Cabal have followed the Traveler, and we know that because Dominus Gaul wanted to be empowered by the light. And that's why we stopped him. Because if 800-pound, long-lived, military-minded uh, space turtles had the light, and had an immortal army that followed them, well, we would be the next subservient race to the Cabal Empire. Uh, for next week's class, I want you to learn and read up on the Vex and the Hive. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to start with Vex, just because they're incredibly interesting and I have a theory I'd like to share. But read up on both. Come back and see me. By the way, your essays for this uh, class are due, I don't know, nine weeks. Uh, ten pages, double-spaced, type max. Anything over ten pages, I'm thrown out. All right, Guardians, good night and good luck.